1: Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 30. Today, I'm joined again by Jeff Sturgis of Whitetail Habitat Solutions for part two of our discussion. Jeff is sharing habitat tips and strategies for growing, targeting, and harvesting mature bucks. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back. You're listening to another episode of The Truths from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast, episode 30. And today we are doing part two of the Jeff Sturgis conversation. If you listen to episode 29, um, that was a session where we talked to Jeff uh, about public land and uh, private land hunting and how to kind of target specific mature bucks in both of those scenarios. And today what we're doing is we'll be uh, discussing how Jeff likes to set up a property, uh, a private land property for targeting specific mature bucks. Uh, Jeff has a wealth of knowledge in this area as well. He's a habitat specialist. He owns a consulting company where this is what he does for a living. Um, I would say you'd be hard pressed to find folks any better in the industry that know how to set up a property or build a smarter mousetrap for uh, targeting specific mature deer and, and, and setting it up for optimum hunting uh, opportunities. Uh, But with that, before we dive into conversation with Jeff, uh, as always, or as uh, the most recent podcast and going forward, I am joined by my esteemed colleague and co-host, Johnny Law, Johnny Utah Mulligan. What's going on, my brother? man, it's going, dude. You know, it's, it's, it's all right. Not doing too bad here in, in, in Pennsylvania. Got a little bit cooler weather. Finally. It was, it was crazy hot the past, I don't know, like two weeks, which was just ridiculous. And I'm getting just a little bit of a a reprieve where I think, I think today's high was like in the very low eighties or like 79, which was like glorious. So I actually made it out to the archery range after work and did a dive bomb in there real quick and, and and threw some missiles downrange, which was uh, which was pretty great. I actually was back home, or I passed through back home this weekend, and uh, stopped by my Bowtechs area. And dude, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, your Bowtech, I think in many ways is kind of like uh, might be sometimes more important than uh than family members <laughs> in my book. Cause yeah, it's like. I feel when I get back from visiting, uh, it's this guy, Ryan back home in in, in Bedford that I go see. And every time I leave his shop, it's like, I have the utmost confidence in my bow and I shoot lights out for probably like two weeks after I go see him. Then after that, you know, it's, uh, I don't know. I don't know if the magic wears off or what. I don't
0: know how you feel about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, man, I'm telling you, I know exactly what you're talking about. Back in Kentucky, uh, one of my best friends, um, Mike Riddle, he was um, he had a, a an archery shop, and I would just take my bow in there, and I'm like, you know what, something doesn't feel right, and I would just drop it off, and I wouldn't watch what he's doing because usually he would like shoo me away, like go away, let me do my thing, <laughs> right? And I don't even know if he even made any changes to it, but just knowing that he had his hands on it and he was double checking stuff, he'd give it back to me, and I mean, I'm stacking arrows.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He might, he might not do anything, you know, actually uh, and, and just hand it back to me. That's a good point. Cause I would believe it if he just touched it and was like, yeah, man, it's all dialed in. You're,
0: <laughs> you're good to go. It's like um, he, he waved a magic wand over your bow and you're uh, all of a sudden it's better.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, this dude too, he always does me a solid cause you know, he knows I live a couple hours away from him um, and I only get to see him whenever I pass through, you know, town or whatever. And so he usually does, he hates doing, you know, you know, paper tuning or anything like that in front of people. Um, but I guess, I guess he considers me not to be a jerk. So he does it in front of me, which is, which is nice. Cause I guess I don't hammer with questions. I just kind of let him do what he's I just let him do what he's doing. Um, Cause quite frankly, I don't know how to. So even if I did say anything, I would have no basis of, you know, or no frame of reference for correctness in what I was talking about. So <laughs> I usually just well, kind it's, of, um, uh, let him do his thing. He's letting
0: you behind the curtain. He's like the great magical Oz and uh, you're getting to go behind the curtain and see the magic show, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, the magic definitely happens on the range for a couple weeks. I actually I changed my setup a little bit, man. I went with a heavier arrow, I and I okay. which is, is kind of crazy considering I've been shooting the same kind of setup for a little while and we're getting ready for, you know, the Montana trips. I know you and I both, ha- both have Montana trips coming up. And uh-huh. uh but I went with a, a little heavier arrow, a little stiffer arrow, and I went to 125 grain tip. Or point Really? Yeah. Um, I don't know why. It's just, it was one of those things where we were talking about it. You know, he wasn't necessarily wild about my um, arrow selection and kind of was uh-huh. like, you know, he, he gave me some recommendations and I was like, well, you know, I'm almost out of arrows and I needed new arrows anyway. And I was like, well, you know, if you're dialing my bow and I might as well just pick up some new arrows. So I went with his recommendation and, um, uh, sure. He was just asking me, you know, what, you know, what point I wanted to put on. He's like, what, you know, broadheads are you shooting? You know, and I told him at that time I was shooting hundred grain. Um, you know, he's like, he just asked, not like suggestively, but just saying, you know, you know, is that you want to stick there? Do you want to go something heavier? You know, what do you want to do? And I had honestly been thinking about going with a heavier broadhead only because I'm looking for a little bit more kinetic energy downrange. Um, sure. And, uh, and I know that shooting a heavier, heavier arrow, um, you know, obviously with a heavier broadhead makes it, you know, the arrow overall heavier, um, will quiet my bow even more. Um, and I'm always into trying to make my bow as quiet as I possibly can. Um, so I went for it. I went with a heavier arrow, uh heavier broadhead and, uh things shooting like a dream. That's awesome. Yeah. What, uh, Good what's deal. your, what's your setup? Are you, uh, what grain are you shooting?
0: Um, so it's funny because as we're talking, I actually just, I switched arrows um, I was shooting the uh, Deep Impact Black Eagles, and um, they do the full outsert on the front, and it's a real heavy arrow. Uh, it's about 11 grains per inch, and I ended up switching to a different arrow, kind of a middle of the road uh, from Black Eagle. It's uh, called a Renegade, and they do the uh, the half cert. Mm-hmm. Um, so my total weight with broadhead is 475.
1: Nice. And you have a pretty long draw length, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 20, 28. 28? Okay. Yeah, I, yep. I got I got oh. those Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. I got a 26 and a half going on here, so I'm trying to get as Oh, much. you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big dude, man. You know, what, what can you do? Um, so I'm, I'm trying to get a little bit more wallop down, down range. So that was kind of what the uh, what prompted me Um. For that, and actually, I was shooting with a guy at the range the one day, and he was he was using a a little heavier arrow, and uh, and we were shooting the exact same bow. Um, His draw length really wasn't much longer than mine, and just the thump that his arrow had downrange was just—I mean, mine, you know, was nothing near that. So that's kind of what prompted the uh, the change to a degree,
0: Um, just seeing how much more wallop he had. But uh, you, you and you know, it's interesting because like. the evolution of of arrows and 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 kind of what's the end thing to do you know and what's the popular thing to do i mean we all know that the arrows before were really heavy and then everybody went to the lighter arrows because they were wanting to get more speed you know out of their arrows and and now uh it, it does seem like a lot of the manufacturers are starting to go back to like the 9 10 and 11 grains per inch um and you're seeing a lot more talk about you know the uh the focs and stuff like that on on the aero flights mm-hmm. um there's that new company um shoot i can't think of, they overseas is uh Zalur. Hmm.
1: hmm no, i've not heard of it
0: um but there it that's a really really heavy arrow i mean like super super heavy arrow mm-hmm. um so it, it is interesting to see how some of that is uh is kind of changing and and I, I like that. I mean, if you've got the poundage, um, you know, there's bows where they keep getting faster and faster and faster. I mean, what are we going to do? Get it, you know, as fast as the speed of light. So I kind of <laughs> like that, like what you're saying, you know, get get a little more wallop, you know, yeah. that, a little more impact, a little more kinetic energy. I like it.
1: Right. And that's kind of was, was my thing. It's like, I'm shooting a pretty fast bow, you know, even with my short, you know, short draw length, it's like, I'm still getting pretty good speed out of it. and You know, I was, you know, the old saying, you know, it's, it's the, the placement of the shot's going to be the telltale whether or not it happens or not. Um, you know, sure, just make the correct shot and it doesn't really matter how quick your bow is. There's plenty of dudes out there, you know, killing deer, shooting 50 pounds draw. you know what I mean? So, um, so, you know, and I started with a field point, you know, as long
0: as you hit it in the right place.
1: Right. Exactly. It's, you know, I started, I think paying a little bit more attention to my setup overall too. I started reading some stuff like you were saying about front of center and starting to try to figure out what all that means. And, um, you know, trying to understand my, my, uh, the flight of my arrow a little bit better and the things that go into that and how you can kind of help yourself in that regard. Um, and it seems just like shooting a heavier arrow helps with those types of things. So, um, I figured uh-huh. why not? I was like, if I don't like it, I can always go back. Um, and cr- the crazy thing was even changing it. It didn't change my setup a whole lot. Now I had to have it tuned of course, but my sights were I had to move them marginally to get dialed back in, which was nice. Sure. So not a lot of time there, but, uh, I know the last time we talked, man, you were, well, so let me back up for a second. So you and the waterhole are officially going steady now. It sounds like
0: we, it is, uh, it, we are going steady. <laughs> um, we've had several dates now. It's getting pretty serious, uh, thinking about settling down with the water holes. Right.
1: Yeah. So it, it looked like you finally got some rain and, so i gotta ask you are you getting good good camera inventory over those water holes is is it kind of playing out like you thought or
0: oh it's insane i mean it is absolutely insane like um you know it started before i even had water deer and turkey both were just piling in there and i don't even know what they were going there other than curiosity or whatever but uh or exposing some different clay dirt or something you know but uh, as soon as we started getting rain, uh, the water hole started filling up with water, and I went and um, I did one camera card pull on one of them just to kind of check it out. Um, I went the other day to check at the check the camera, and I didn't swap cards just because I forgot to bring another SD with me, but nonetheless, I flipped through some of the pictures there for a little while. It's, I mean, they're never not in there. Wow. I mean, does, fawns, bucks, I mean, it just it's unbelievable. Like
2: that's crazy. It's
0: worked out way better than what I ever could have imagined. Basically.
1: Yeah. It's, I, I've not done a, a card pool yet on the water hole that I finally hung a camera over. Unfortunately, uh-huh. I didn't hang it early enough, but I was planning to on my way through this weekend, but I hung it up off the ground. Um, and I left my lone wolf sticks uh, sit at my sure. house while I was out uh, while I was on the other side of the state. So Unless I sprouted uh, a few inches or more than a few inches during the course of the car ride, I was not going to be able to touch that camera. So, <laughs> right. so I, I've got no stories to tell about the uh, uh, about the water holes. But that's crazy, man. They're, do you think they're they're getting in there because you've exposed like some like minerals mineral that they're looking for? Or?
0: Yeah, I mean. Um there's just something i you know i know that there's some trace minerals and stuff that's obviously in in the dirt and in the ground and in the soil and and stuff like that but i mean i don't think that that's the biggest draw that's in there um it it is just a water source it is a convenient water source there's not a lot of water around me and you know with these high temperatures you've been getting the same you know high temps that we've been getting here in iowa and um no different than us if i if I had my choice to walk to the fridge that's 20 feet away or to walk to the gas station to get a drink that's two miles away, you know, I'm obviously going to go to the closest source. So um, these water holes were both positioned right next to a food source and in between a bedding area. Um, So they're you know i've kind of given them everything that they need uh this time of year anyways all right there in one convenient spot and they're just they're in it constantly um there was one trail camera picture that i want to post up eventually but you've got the doe standing on the bank and then her two fawns are down inside the water and i was going to make a little caption like um you know doe tested fawn or uh fawn tested (laughs) doe approved you know right nice yeah, that's... Um, but yeah it's uh it's neat man it's super cool and it's just fun you know we talk about this you and i all the time is how much fun it is just to keep playing with your property and tweaking things and doing something differently and you know you you're providing something back for the deer and for the habitat there and i've had some other critters that have been in there checking out the water which was awesome that they were able to get in and then get back out nice uh, so that's been cool too
1: yeah that's awesome man yeah the uh yeah I'm looking forward to doing doing the camera pool over the waterhole because I'm curious to see because um, it's oh, like yeah. I, like I said before it it's similar it's similar to what you kind of have going on where it's it's going to be the only water kind of in the area because it's on 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 the top of a mountain but I'm thinking here not this weekend but next I'll probably get to get to pool that because I'll be headed back I gotta go back and kind of finish the food plots and um make another pass with those and kind of give them another, another spray since I, since I towed them up. But with the rain you got, has the, uh, the beans uh, reacted positively to the, uh, to the H2O?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they have, um, right before, um, right before I went out of town this past weekend, I got to go out and spray Roundup. Um, we got some rain right before I left. And then, uh, once I got that rain, then I went ahead and put some, some Roundup down and, and killed off everything else. and, and I was, you know, using some roundup tolerant roundup ready beans and they've responded very well. They're not competing with the weeds, you know, for what moisture there is. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're starting to pop. I went over there, uh, I drove up to the, to the backfields yesterday afternoon, uh, to check those out. And they're all, eh, they're, you know, eight inches up out of the ground and stuff like that right now, which I planted really late. Plus I had that dry spell. So, it almost feels like I really just had germination a couple weeks ago. Wow! Um, okay. So they're 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 doing their thing. We're and you know, I'll keep an eye on it. And um, you know, if I can, I would like for that those two plots to stay bean plots. Uh, but I may end up broadcasting, you know, a plot topper kind of a thing just in case.
1: Right? Yeah, got to cover all all bases in in that regard. I got just a little bit more food plot work to do. I got a small parcel that i'll be hunting this fall Um, i'm doing a little bit of suburbs that's not suburbs actually that's not true Um, it's it's out in the country a little bit but it's a bunch of since i live in close to a metro area it's still you know relatively tight property line so it's just a couple acres that is near um, some public land that i hunt here in pennsylvania so it's a buddy of mine's parents who own it so i'll be headed out there to um, help him finish putting in his food plot and that's some deer work i have coming up this weekend but this past weekend man i did An awesome scout um, and got a chance to get out and kind of look at some new, you know, some some areas that I'm interested in maybe checking out this fall. And uh, I saw I saw exactly what I was hoping to see, that the terrain was ridiculously rugged um, and put in about nine miles with with a buddy of mine and uh basically macheted my way through nine miles with now i get this so it <laughs> indiana was, jones style and uh, everything dr jones all the way dr jones on that one <laughs> um but it was so i macheted my way through nine miles with my but it was a you know it's a mutual friend of ours chad sylvester i was out there with him uh-huh. um and uh but i macheted we both macheted our way through nine miles with a wicked tree uh gear handsaw neither of us had a machete Good man. yeah so uh it is uh it is jungle tested and uh Clint approved. Uh it can help you get through the <laughs> nice <laughs> the nasty. It was ridiculous, man. I'd never walk through things that thick. So I get out so I, I meet up with you know, I meet up with Chad and we're going to do some glassing the first night. And I got there kinda late late because I was you know, where I was where we were headed, you know, it's kind of a bit of a drive for me. And uh-huh. uh I get there kinda late. Rate right? I mean we got enough time to try to get to a place to do some glassing and uh i get there and i'm like hey do you want to do some glassing real quick and he's like yeah jump in the truck so i jumped in a you know his truck we took off because we met at some little church you know to kind of meet a, a meet-up point because we were kind of out in the middle of nowhere that way i didn't get lost and uh um, is
0: this where he put the bag over
1: your head and so you is, couldn't see where you're going and all that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah you'd be familiar with that mr johnny law you know it's, I'm, I'm, yeah it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's a there's been a bag in your closet before um But, uh, so yeah, we jumped, jumped in his truck, we go to glass and like, I'm totally not thinking about, so like, there's one thing in this world, in this world, two things in this world that I hate. One is snakes, which this place has a lot of them, which I didn't, I knew of, I thought I knew. And then he confirmed when I got there, which made me not feel great. Um, and then the other thing is, is bug bites. Like I can't stand it. Like I'm allergic to, I'm not allergic to much that'll will i put it this way. I'm not allergic to anything that'll kill me. I'm only allergic okay. enough to things that will just drive me nuts. You know what I mean? So anytime I get bit by anything, it's like not enough to go to the doctor really, but just bad enough to where it's like, you know, the normal bug bite someone gets and goes away in two days. I'm going to have it for three sure. weeks and it's going to swell up the size of my head. Like, that's just like how it works. And I have all these, Dang bites. On. yeah, I have all these bites all over me already from like hanging out in the woods with my family the, the previous weekend. And, uh, Hey,
0: one, one word deet.
1: D- yeah dude, it doesn't matter dude like it i can put on whatever i could go out in like a arm iron clad like bug repellent chastity like gear and i would still yeah. come back with a bunch of bug bites and, and sugar bites
0: oh man that's awful
1: yeah so so i'm like yeah that's good glass so i didn't as i said like you know this area is relatively you know um relatively new to me um so i wasn't sure where we were headed and we take off and i'm thinking like you know, we're probably gonna go sit like a field edge somewhere and, and do some glassing or whatever. We drive like up this mountain road to wherever, and we get out, and it's basically just like this huge clear cut. And I'm like, and I'm just thinking to myself, because I'm in a pair of like slip on Vans with no with no sne- oh, with no socks, a t shirt, an Arrow Wild t shirt at that, and a pair there of shorts. Yeah, and a pair of shorts. And I'm walking through chest high clear cut that is filled with rattlesnakes. Uh, chiggers Anything that'll bite you And that's where we're going to glass <laughs> Up this ridge top
0: <laughs> Nice
1: Yeah And I have on uh, Not the right gear At all to be doing this And we get up there And Chad just looking at me He's like Yeah I'll probably put up Shouldn't have should have Wore shorts to do this And I was like Yeah Yeah and As I'm looking at like my legs That have already been chewed up Like the week before But um, But yeah So it was It was a good trip A lot of A lot of good sign um, You know looking forward looking forward to the fall most most definitely um but you had a trip this weekend too man i want to i'm more interested to hear yours you went to a state that i (laughs) that both of you and i are are getting ready to head to here i think both of us in september you'll be doing an antelope hunt right yep and Mm -hmm. i'll be doing an elk hunt uh but you your animal is
0: a little bigger than my animal
1: yeah it is but i'm a little smaller than you so i have to make up for it somewhere right (laughs) so um the uh so you went out there for the, the, the archery challenge, right? So
0: yeah. Yep. Um, so how so, was that?
1: Cause I've had friends do the one in PA, which everyone says it's awesome, you know, but I'm curious yeah, to see what it's, it's like it being out somewhere like Montana, where the terrain is just like that Western style, that Western terrain that, that the, the other courses on yeah, the East coast had I mean, to mimic. It's
0: very, it's Western, you know, and, and I haven't actually had a chance to do any of the other, uh, tack shoots. Um, I went to the one in big sky last year uh, with Sitka. And then this year, um, my buddies over at prime archery, you know, they reached out and said, Hey, you know, once you come and come and do the shoot with us and hang out and stuff and just, a an awesome experience. Um, and it started like immediately at the cabin. Uh, we stayed in this super nice, like three-story cabin and, um jason matzinger from into high country and and all of the rocky mountain elk films and stuff that he's done the project elk project mule deer and goes on and on Um, awesome videographer storyteller and he he was there in the cabin uh sam soholt um ridiculously talented photographer um, and you know, he's doing the whole public, uh, public land bus tour coming up here, nice. uh, live a year in a bus. So it was cool to talk to him and get all the final details, uh, about that. And then you had, uh, the guys from prime, you had Mike and Brian and Ryan, uh, they were in the cabin as well. And then, uh, at the last minute, uh, Steve Eklund from Canada, um, he ends up coming and stays at the cabin as well. So we just had a packed house of of really interesting people, all really cool guys that, you know, are all just ate up with hunting like, you know, you and I are. Um, we get out there on the course and started shooting. You know, they have the prime course. There's a Sitka course. There's a Mountain Ops course, Mystery Ranch. And then they do like a locals course and stuff uh, that's a little smaller. And then there's a full range. You can take... Um, they have like a dinosaur section where you can take like trad equipment and stuff and shoot at shorter distances. And then even the practice range starts at 20 yards. And I, I'm pretty sure it was a 178 yard caribou they had up on the hill. Wow. Um, And everything in between. Uh, It was just, man, it's, it's cool. But you, you know, you take the chair lifts all the way to the top and you basically hike your way all the way down. And um, most of the courses are 25 targets. And, Now, if you did the prime course, you could actually get to target number like 13, I think it was, and you could branch off and go do the Sitka course. And then where you finish the Sitka course puts you back on target number 14 of the prime, and then you finish. So that's about an eight-hour day. Um, But, yeah, man, it's, you know, for a whitetail guy, um, stretching out and... Like when Sam and I shot the first day, the very first target of the prime course was a was a lion at 120 yards. I was like, "Well, I think we're going to be losing some arrows today, boys." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> nice. But how how uh, how did you shoot? Did you hold your own? You know, I'll, I'll be honest, man. Like when when I was on, I was on. Um, you know my my sight. Um, I took my sight off my bow, and uh, I tried a, a Montana Black Gold sight, single pin adjustable. Because my normal you know pin is a five you know five set pins, uh, non adjustable, just you know twenty to sixty. Right. So I switched out sights, and like the day before I left to go there, um, and my sight tape stopped at a hundred, and and actually I don't I don't have the clearance to go any further down, even if I had more numbers, you know, on my sight tape. So some of those really long targets, I was, you know, holding very high and just trying to kind of guesstimate as to where I should be. And those, there was a javelina, like 117 yards that I, I chucked one into the, into the sticks and I never found that arrow. (laughs) Um, Another arrow, I hit a little low and hit one of the support pieces of rebar mm-hmm. and that broke the broke the tip of my you know my arrow. Right. Um but I came home with three arrows less than what I started with. Um so I, I wasn't too terribly upset considering how much we shot and the shortest target was like twenty yards, twenty two yards and the longest was a hundred and 28 yards or something like that. So, nice. um, I wasn't too, I wasn't too, and I would say the average is probably 75 to 80.
1: Right. Wow. Yeah. So how'd you, uh, how'd you like the single pin?
0: Uh, I like the single pin for, uh, I like it for 3d shooting. And, and the reason for that is I had a single pin last year when I was in Montana on the antelope pond and you know, you're crawling through the sage and, and you kind of pop up, you know, like a gopher and you range, you know, you range the animal and I'm like, okay, 68 yards. So I lower back down. I adjust my sight you know, to 68 yards. I'm about half full draw. And then the animal starts moving again. So that you kind of let down, you go back to your range finder and I'm like, Oh, 59 yards. (laughs) That's a big difference, you know, on a goat because they're so small. So then you dial it back down to 59, you get ready to draw and he starts moving again. And at that point I was like, you know what? I am not hunting with a single pin. Some people really, really like it. And, um, you know, and there's different options, you know, there's the five pins that are adjustable and guys will either make their middle pin or their lowest pin or their top pin. And they'll just make that as their adjuster, you know, um, and I think it's all in what you get used to and kind of what you train with. Um, but like I said, I, I like a single pin. The the sight itself, Montana Black Gold, makes a makes a robust, a really, really nice sight. Uh, I was really pleased with the sight and how easy it was to sight in. Um, but for me, for Whitetails, um, you know, a fixed five pin is, you know, that's what I learned with. That's what I'm comfortable with. And I, that's that's what I'll rock, you know, this year.
1: Right, yeah, it's the uh, the old philosophy. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know, I've thought yeah, about, yeah I've thought about switching to a single pin. Then every time I do, I'm kind of like, you know, it's like I can get out to 60 with mine. I, you know, it's and I I don't anticipate ever really taking a shot further than that, except maybe when I hunt out west. But that's not going to uh-huh. be. You know, I, I hope that it's an every year thing. But you know, it's you know even then, it's like, am I going to shoot? Would I trust myself to shoot beyond 60 yards? Probably not. You know what I mean? Sure. So, Maybe seventy, you know, on on an animal. If I have nothing but air and opportunity between me and it, um, but you know that we'll, we'll see how that shakes out this year. I might get out there and feel myself a little bit.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah, but, no, and and that's the thing too, you know. Um, I found myself going through the courses and shooting eighty yards, ninety yards, one hundred yards, one hundred twenty yards, and then as we're wrapping up the Mystery Ranch course, um, one of the last targets is there's like a frog at twenty three yards. And, um, I ended up shooting it twice. Um, and my arrows, the full length of the shaft, they were touching each other all the way from the field point, all the way to the, to the knock, you know? So it, there is something to that, you know, you shoot those long distances. Then when you come back to a shorter shot, I mean, it's like a, you know, it's like a chip shot, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I do it pretty much every time I go to the range, I'll start off shooting from 60 roughly is usually where I'll start 60 and 50. And then usually mm-hmm. the last few arrows I shoot, I'll shoot at 20 because I'm I start to get a little tired and like my form starts to go. And so then, you know, out to 15, 60, I start to lose it a little bit. So then I know better. It's like, all right, the day's done, you know, before I, you know, start to shoot poorly and lose my form completely and start creating bad habits. Um, so I'll step back into 20 and I'll fire off three at 20 and just drive nails with them. And then I leave the range feeling really good because the last three arrows I shot were, you know, really good shots. So that's kind of sure. like my psychological warfare on myself to keep, to stay positive. <laughs> and that way I don't, Well, fa- and, you fall know, and it was cool
0: too. We did a, um, instead of like shooting for eight, 10, 12, you know what I mean? Like your normal 3D shooting style. Um, Sam was like, hey, I got an idea. Let's, um, you know, are you wanting to keep score? And I said, yeah, I guess. But, you know, for the most part, a lot of those 3D targets, the 12th ring isn't exactly the kill area. Right. You know what I mean? Um, right. So he said, well, here's, here's the way I like to do it. Um, you get one point if it's a kill. You get zero points if you miss the animal completely. Right. And it's negative one point if you wound the animal and i'm like you know what that's practical like let's right. that's yeah let's do that that makes more sense you know that's that's, right. that's 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 my speed so that's what we ended up doing and and we had a lot of fun um he actually outshot me on the on the prime course and i think at the end of uh at the end of 25 targets he was sitting at 23 and i was like at 21 nice. uh, so or maybe 20 was there but, a wager um, was there a wager involved uh, no, we had talked about doing like a dollar or, you know, maybe a, uh, a cold, a cold pop top of some sort. But, right. um, uh, we, I don't think, I don't think we would have remembered either way. We were both pretty tired when we got done. <laughs> <laughs> right. So speaking of, speaking of wager, I have a, uh,
1: I have a wager for you. So remember, okay. So remember, if you remember the last last record we did together, it was uh, now that you're now that you're fully vested. What we will call fully vested yep. in the in the Truth from the Stand uh, yep. podcast as the co-host, the, the professional courtesy goes out the window. And I think you even said, you know, knuckle up, time to knuckle up. Um, so yeah. I've got I've got a wager for you, and this is actually okay. so Chad and I are going in on this wager together. I'm putting Chad on the spot here too. Um, okay. So you're in Iowa. All right. I'm in Pennsylvania. Chad lives in Ohio. So uh-huh. what we propose to you, and we can figure out exactly what the wager is, but we would like to propose a bet that to see who wins, basically compare we each select one trail camera picture and we can pick whatever the cutoff date is. So let's say September first when you know when they're, you know, going hard horn or are nearly hardhorn or starting to shed their velvet or whatever. If we want to wait till the middle of September, that's fine, whatever the case is. But anytime okay. between the summer velvet to when they turn hard horned you know we'll pick an arbitrary date what do you what date do you want to pick do you want to say like September 15th or something like that mid-september?
0: Sure okay okay
1: we can each select one trail camera picture for submission to see who has the biggest the biggest buck on trail camera um, okay. And uh, the winner, you know, will be determined. We'll kind of, maybe we'll put it out on social media. You can put it out on Arrow Wild, both pictures. I'll put it out on the truth from Stan social media, uh, the pictures. Uh-huh. And we can have people kind of vote, you know, what is the biggest. And we'll try to get a good guess. You know, I don't know if maybe you have a buddy uh, or something where we can kind of have someone eyeball those. It's really good at kind of scoring on the hoof, you know, and say, yeah, that looks like a, you know, a one, whatever it is. Um, sure. And then the winner of that will then you know so what i will offer up we'll have to figure out what what you want to offer up but what i will offer up is that if you win you know i you will then be the master for one episode on the truth from the stand podcast where you will be the host <laughs> i will be your bat i will be your robin to batman that day and you can kind of run the show um and if I win, though, we have to figure out what what I get in return. And Chad and I are going in on this at the same time because I told him if he, if we lose, um, then he has to come on that episode where we announce that we've lost to take his uh, to take his beating along with me.
0: Take his lumps, yeah. Take his yeah. lumps, yeah. So, what do you think? You game? Yeah, heck yeah. I mean, I, you know, on paper, um, I feel like I could be at an advantage, but. Um, you know who knows? We'll see. Yeah, we'll let we'll let the old uh, chips fall
1: where, where they may. It's like uh, I have a good I have a uh, put it this way. Like I, I feel like we are at a disadvantage, and that's and that's okay. Um, but I think from what I uh, know from this past weekend, um, we we got a sport and chance. I'll put it put it good. that way. Okay.
0: Um, that's awesome
1: yeah so i was i was talking to chad about it when we were driving around. i was like hey what do you think i was like i'm gonna to talk to utah and see if he wants to do a wants to yeah. do a challenge and he was like yeah man let's do it so i was like all right we'll throw it out there i was like if i was like if we lose though dude I was like, you're coming on the show with me i was like i'm not taking that lashing myself i was like he's gonna run the show <laughs> but we have to figure out what uh you know what the uh what the winner if i win what do i what do i get in return you don't have to kind of figure that out now we can we can figure yeah, that I out i will yeah later.
0: i'll uh I'll make it something good the so last year uh one of my buddies um that i that i work with he he came up with a with a contest and he said okay this is your first you know hunting season in iowa and he hunts in tennessee um on some family managed ground that they've been food plotting and supplemental feeding and stuff like that you know for years and years um But, you know, it's Tennessee, a state that's typically not known for giant, giant deer, you know? Right. Um, So we kind of skewed the rules a little bit. And it it was, it would almost take, it almost would take like a a genius, you know, to like sit down and, and, I guess, code and cipher all this information out. But it came down to like uh, sending off the jaw bones to have an accurate age of the deer and if the deer was um, five years old you got five bonus points if it was six you got 10 points if it was seven you know you got 15 points and then basically his score on antler size started at 120 inches and then anything over 120 was an inch of, uh, you know, one point an inch. Right. Mine started at 155, and anything over, um, you know, you got an inch, uh, inch a point. So um, it was kind of it was kind of skewed a little bit, um, but it kind of made sense, you know, for the typical, you know, average size deer and, and stuff like that. But um, right, and you know what? I don't think we really followed through with it. Um,
1: I was gonna say that sounds like a lot of in man. Like yeah, it was
0: it was kind of neat, you know.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of, of mathing to be be doing. It's like after, <laughs> after after a couple pops, I don't know that I would care anymore. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, well, we gotta send off the jaws and all kinds of stuff, but uh, I wouldn't end up with. I know I didn't end up with any points. I mine was just a four year old last year um, on the jaw size, right? But um, and my deer didn't break one fifty five last year actually, so. Um, it was a nice dude. He though. probably he would have kicked my butt if he shot a one twenty one. He won, you know, right. by, even with a point. So. Right.
1: Nice. Right, so we have our, our trail camera challenge kind of kind of yep. thrown down, and I know we're running, you know, a little long here, and I want to make sure we get to uh, get to the conversation with Jeff. So, man, I think with that, the only other piece of information I wanted to share was that we do have truth from the stand trucker hats now so anyone out there yes yeah so we got we got some cool trucker hats I posted a picture on Facebook I think there's one on Instagram floating around somewhere Uh, they're cool I like them John you'll have one in the mail here soon and uh, anyone out there listening who wants to get a Truth from the Stand trucker hat you can hit up the website I have a shop there now and uh, there's a very limited number I did a very small limited run so it's just kind of a a little bit of a, a, a hat inventory for those who who might be interested to pick one up. You'll be the super cool person at Deer Camp. Probably the only person at Deer Camp with the Truth from the Stand hat. So it would be the talk of Deer Camp. And pick one. It's of like those being up. the cool kid in school. That's right, man. Yeah, that's what I figure. Like we'll keep it limited, man. We got to keep the club small at first. You know, it's it's yep. a, it's, a, it's an intimate thing. Um, but with that, man, I don't have any more updates. And I want to make sure we get to uh, we get to Jeff's uh, information and talk about setting up land to um, hunt specific targeted mature bucks on, on public land and how to, how to set that up and build a smarter
0: mousetrap. For sure. And uh, also his take on waterholes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he's going to mention something about waterholes. He is the waterhole king, that guy. But with yep. that, let's go ahead and turn it over to Jeff and see what he has to say about targeting mature bucks on private land and how to set up habitat to do just that. Before we pick up our conversation with Jeff, I want to share a word about our partners at Exodus Outdoor Gear. As most of you probably already know, Exodus recently launched their Lift 2 camera. Great picture quality, amazing video, and of course, their industry-leading no BS guarantee are just a few reasons why you should pick one up. They're also hooking up all the truth from the stand listeners with a $20 discount at checkout when you use the promo code TRUTH at ExodusOutdoorGear.com to make your purchase. Now let's pick up our conversation with Jeff about creating Habitat for targeting mature bucks. You know, I wanted to change gears here. Um, You know, I know you've got an incredible amount of expertise, particularly, you know, when it comes to, you know, property and habitat management, you know, I... I've, I've read you know your uh, two of your books, the White-tail, uh, Whitetail Success by Design, and then the Mature Buck Success by Design. And the Whitetail Success by Design book oh, yeah. had me. Now when I see roadkill, I never look. At, I look at roadkill differently <laughs> now than I ever have in my entire life. Um, just by the yeah. what you were kind of mentioning as far as you know, you can tell a lot about movement in an area when you see you know roadkill along the road because there's a reason why a deer is choosing mm-hmm. to cross that that area. Um, So especially when I'm driving places where I might want to consider hunting, uh, I kind of look for where deer are getting hit along the road um, for places to potentially start. But I I wanted to dive in to try to help some of those folks who are listening, um, who either own their own land or have access to land where they have the ability to manipulate the habitat to build a better mousetrap, you know, so to speak. Um, And actually, your words were ringing true in my ears yesterday as I was at my dad's new property. He just picked it up this past fall. or I'm sorry, this past winter. And, uh, he's only had it for a couple months and I've got a chance to scout it a little bit. And I did some Turkey hunting on it and I put in a small plot and I definitely had, uh, had you in my, in my ear as I was building this plot, because I first went in and I was like, I was thinking of the size that I wanted to put in and I'm just putting in an annual because I'm not real sure what the movement on the property Mm -hmm. is. I've got some cameras up. And whenever I walked in yesterday to kind of start working on it, you know, I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm just going to use a weed eater and I'm going to use, I'm going to make an odd shaped. Um, food plot. I was like, and I'm going to skirt the edge of the timber here because there's a big uh, crep field um, just across our fence line. That where the the fence is down, I can see where the deer are crossing. I was like, so what I want to do is I was like, I'm going to mm-hmm. make an odd shape one with a couple different pinch points, and I'm just going to hug the, the the timber line and make like this long swooping L. That way, I pull <clears throat> the deer across four different stand location or three different stand trees I picked for stand locations that I can hunt, I think, probably three different wins, that single kill, that that kill plot. Um, and after I, you know, and it was funny because I was glad we were getting ready to record this podcast because otherwise I, it may not have popped into my head right away because um, I was actually had a lot mm-hmm. more work cut out mm-hmm. for myself until I thought of that. And I was like, man, I just reduced my work and I yeah. probably, you know, it, it, <laughs> increased the efficiency of what this is going to do. So I wanted to kind of walk through, for an example, you know, I'm a person who gives... Uh, Gives you a call, you know, and says, "Hey, I have a farm that I need some help with to make some enhancements to, um, you know, and I want to hunt, you know, and target specific bucks, you know." So, so where do you start, you know, whenever you're getting ready to make these habitat improvements with a blanket slate, you know, or a clean slate piece of land? And what's that mm-hmm. first step? You know, let's pick a state, you know, not known for great hunting, for example, like whether it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, or or, or New York that your that your client is from. So where where does Jeff start to try to help me? you know, be able to have good hunting or higher success rate for targeted bucks.
3: This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis as your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more.
4: You know, that's, uh <clears throat> kind of goes back to, you remember the the Wait Till Success by Design book, the intro and the conclusion there. And, you know, it's book's been out for a while, so I'm not really <laughs> saying too much out of turn. But it's um, the intro and conclusion. I talk about this buck and, and the pattern he's making and why you're going into hunting. And here's this buck coming through the woods. And, and um, you know, in the conclusion, I talk about the harvest of that buck. And and, and then I reveal that that buck was on public land. and. <laughs> I look at deer again. All move the same. They all relate to the same. Um, and what it starts with to me, whether it's on public land or private land, but especially when I'm looking at a client property, um, and and you know even on public land, but it all starts with food. Food defines daily movement. Um, you know, for example been in huge fast tracks of public land the up that i'm not sure another individual has been in for a decade or more literally i'm wow. um, just really rough swampy garbage people just don't walk that back you know back that far and if those deer in that area don't have some type of food source to relate to unless they're pushed into those areas why are they there mm-hmm. and i've been on properties private land parcels 400 400 acre parcel where um you have a, a golf course, a neighborhood, and then ag land on two sides. So four sides. You know the neighborhood, golf course, and then two sides of ag. And the best sign on the, that 400 acres is within that first 200 uh, 200 yards of cover. And um, landowners haven't been in the middle of it for many years. And we go in there because it's their core area. It's their sanctuary, and there's hardly any rubs or scrapes. And really, unless a deer's just traveling through it's outside of that daily movement of food and they don't need to be in that central area so they don't go in that central area. So basically you have 200 acres of wasted area in the center of those 400. So what I'm starting with is food because the person who controls the afternoon daily food source movement for the deer herd in the neighborhood is the one that controls the herd potential, the hunting potential. They are the ones that have the ability to protect bucks, advance into the next age class. And so I'm looking at where can we put food on this property um, that we can complement the neighboring cover and then at the same time still leave enough cover, which is what I call depth of cover, to where um, you can actually expect that does love to bed next to food sources. They'll bed as close as they can, and they'll move 100 yards every day just back and forth to their food and then go wherever at night. But um, so I look at that movement of here's food, here's doe bedding, and then find here's bedding opportunity. And so I'll go to a property even in uh, Buffalo County where it's just you know, famed county for shooting giant bucks, but it's also got these big finger ridges of hardwoods. And you'll see food plots down in the valleys, for example. And you might have a finger ridge that comes down that goes up 150 to 200 feet in elevation, and it's just all open hardwoods. So kind of imagine the only spot deer could bed would be on that top of that finger ridge. Mm -hmm. And so... You have the food down at the bottom. You go 200 yards up to the top. It's all open timber in between. And really, there's some does bedding on top, and you literally don't have any room for bucks because you go down the back side of the finger. And again, it's ag land or food plots down on the other side. So, in that case, you have food, but then you need to work on that cover adjacent to the food so that you can pull those does off the ridge, bring them down closer to the food where they want to be, to. anyways. Maybe improve a bench halfway up to offer some thick cover and some bedding cover. Uh, maybe you're even completing a timber harvest on that entire chunk right there so you can actually start to to have potential bedding uh, layers next to that food and then halfway up that ridge and then at the top of the ridge. And once you start having two or three layers of potential bedding and potential adequate bedding, it doesn't even have to be perfect. It just has to be bedding opportunity. Mm-hmm. Now you all of a sudden in that 200-yard area have room for does down at the bottom, there's some does in the intermediate area, some smaller bucks, and then some mature bucks up at the top. And so really look at food, and and once you have that system in place, which is the same system you kind of want to look for on public land, now you can have an assemblage of stands that make sense. You're hunting these intermediate stands for cruising, for potential maybe um, deer traveling to food in the afternoon, and you're hunting closer towards the food, um, and then you're also, you know, in the evening— And then in the morning, you give yourself the opportunity to come in from a back door entrance and actually come to the back side of that bedding area, maybe up on top of that ridge and wait for those bucks to come back to you in the morning, which is, um, you know, a really precision opportunity for hunting bucks. So I look at it like you start with that food and then that gives you the bedding opportunity. And then it's a matter of how does that relate to your access? How does that relate to your neighboring hunting pressure? Um, of course, you can imagine all the different topographical and habitat constrictions that are already there on the property. For example, a swamp versus a steep ridge mm-hmm. versus hardwoods that a landowner wants to manage uh, for long term. So you have to take in all those factors, um, let alone the the ability of the particular landowner to actually walk up to, the, to get up to that top of the ridge. or Are they going to drive? Mm-hmm. What type of vehicles are they using to hunt? And how does that impact? the? Uh, so really, that food um, source movement is is critical. And what I want, I want those deer on my land um, uh, about an hour to an hour and a half before dark. And I want them to do that every day of the season. And so that means I have to have consistent food and it has to be diverse enough uh, to where we can hit my food and then right about dark they leave and go over to the neighbors. Whether it's neighbors food plots, and neighbors bait piles, the neighbors ag field. Um, if I'm just allowing them to go to the ag field next door and I don't offer food, they could enter any anywhere within a three-quarter half-mile area, and then at the same time, they're on my neighbor's land for that hour, hour and a half before dark, which is their most important feeding of the day. Right, so, so, really, you know, that food is food is critical. Right.
1: So, <clears throat> so, so food is, as you mentioned, is, is the critical component. Are you, are you considering, you know, whenever you're going in to assess a, a, a property, are you looking at, you know, food plot opportunities as well as um, anything you could do to put food on the ground that is already e- existing, like in the, in the form of hinge cutting or whatever the case might be, or, you know, whether it's, you know, timber cutting to for regenerative growth or, you know, burning a, an old, you know, field that's kind of gone to gone to pot to kind of get the the new seed bed to kind of regenerate for natural forbs and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. what, what's your approach to that before we hear how Jeff approaches providing quality food on our property, let's hear this week's Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. This week, John shares a few easy steps to manage your perennial plots.
2: Uh, So what you want to do for maintenance is, number one, every year, check your soil pH. Uh, You may want to add a little lime to the top of the soil to maintain soil pH because it tends to drop from the surface down. And the longer you can maintain soil pH at the surface, the the longer it will stay up in the lower levels. Um, they also want to fertilize uh, fertilize once or twice a year. Uh, do it according to a soil test report. If you don't do one we've got uh, uh, default recommendations for that on the back of the bags and also at our website. And then the next thing is uh, when you get those two out of you know you got to do those no matter what. Watch for grass when you see grass coming in, you need to spray it and get it out of there. Uh, we have a, we have a, a grass herbicide called a rest max. Uh, it will control most kinds of grass. And again, when I say most kinds of grass, uh, we tend to call grass, anything that looks like grass, we call it grass. Well, they're not all the same, obviously. Uh, what these herbicides do is they interfere with the ability of the plant to, to feed itself and not all grasses feed themselves the same way. So there's some grasses it won't get. Now, our slay broadleaf herbicide will get some some of the heavier sedges that a Max won't get. But the point is, you want to get that grass sprayed out of there, and a is a foliar uptake herbicide, meaning it's got to enter the leaves of an actively growing grass to get into the plant. And this is the way I explain, <clears throat> explain this to folks, and I have yet to find anybody anywhere that doesn't understand this. You know how you walk out on your back porch in the spring with your cup of coffee, and you kind of go, oh, you know, your lawn's getting a little green. Well, that's that's not the time yet. It's when you walk out there a few weeks later with your cup of coffee and look at the grass, and you say, oh, crap, I wonder if my lawnmower's going to start. That's the beginning of the window to spray uh, RestMax because the grass is actively growing, meaning it's visibly increasing in height. That's when it's going to take that herbicide in. Uh, but you need to do that. Spray for grass. Uh, you also want to mow our perennials a few times, and there are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, now, when I say mow, uh, I'm talking about watching the plot. Anytime that you see the, the forage plants, grasses, or weeds, anything in the plot starting to get ready to flower or put on seed heads, uh, what happens is the seed heads and flowers come up and then A little bit later, they dry and become viable. So when you see that process starting, you want to take a mower and shave the top off that plot and stop the process.
1: And that, my friends, is a Whitetail Institute food plot tip of the week. I have to say, I have a five-acre perennial clover plot going into its third year and have used both Slay and Arrest Max to manage for broadleaf weeds and grasses. These products, along with timely mowing, have helped this plot thrive. And if you'd like to learn more about Slay, Arrest Max, or any of their forage products, head over to WhitetailInstitute.com. Now let's get back to the show.
4: Looking at um, every every aspect of food, and at the same time really realizing that the uh, the difference in value of food to deer in the deer's eyes is what makes them move. Um, deer feed five times in a twenty four hour period, and the rhythmic pattern feeders just like babies. And so they want to feed every four or five hours. And that means twice during the night, twice during the day. And then that afternoon food source, which to me is their big dinnertime food source. And so what I want for them during the day is natural browse. And they need natural browse, whether it's in the form of hardwood regeneration or Forbes is natural uh, goldenrod ragweed. Um, there's many different forms that that uh, shrub shrub tips. So there's a lot of different types of food that they can browse on during the day, that is still a four or five out of ten, maybe a three out of ten. So it's not like it's open hardwoods and there's no food. It's consistent food. It's there for the entire hunting season. But then at the same time, it's a drastic, um, you know, drastically different value of food than where they're heading to food plots in the afternoon or even a potential ag field that you have on your property um, that you can you can control. And so. Um, you know, even in their bedding areas, for example, um, I'm not a big fan of a 20 acre switchgrass field just because, unless deer are forced to bed in there or a, a stand of spruce or a stand of pine. Then, yeah, it looks like good cover, but there's no food in there. There's no browse. So unless they're forced to be in there, they don't choose to be in there. Mm-hmm. And so you could have a lot of acres of, of wasted land, and especially when I'm looking at a lot of small properties. Even We've been on properties as, as small as five acres. Wow. And so you, you need to maximize everything that you have, but at the same time, um, make sure that you're you're giving value to the deer. For example, a switchgrass field. I'd rather see pure switchgrass because that gives structure and hiding cover and holding cover for the deer with pockets of uh, native regeneration in. So the switchgrass protects those pockets, it hides those pockets, um, but in a 20-acre in a field of switch, I'd rather see that um, 8 to 12 acres of switch surrounding those pockets and native regeneration, where you actually kill any other grass that's in there and just release those broadleaves, maybe throw some box elder seeds, some red maple seeds, get some browse going in there, let the goldenrod ragweed come in, and uh, maybe some of the white clover that's naturally there, and and you'll have a substantial food source out in those in that bedding area. It's it's well hidden, but again, it's not the same value as that uh, as that high powered food plot that might have uh, four or five different varieties of forages growing in the same plot um, nice. to where they can go to and visit that plot all season long.
1: So I wanted to follow up on two things that you mentioned that were interesting. The first one is, you know, you mentioned you work on properties that are as small as five acres. So when you mentioned the three layers of, of bedding, right, or, um, or cover, if you will, um, how much land just, you know, because I think some people think that you need this tremendous amount of land to, to really, you know, enhance your habitat and have an opportunity to, to hunt targeted bucks and so forth. Um, how much land do you would you say you would need to be able to manage effectively those several layers of bedding or cover to make sure that you have your food, the dough bedding, and then the 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 buck bedding opportunity behind that.
4: Well, when you get excuse me, when you get down to the micro parcels, the parcels that are five acres, ten acres, and sometimes twenty acres, um, you really don't have enough room, mm-hmm. and so you're trying to create opportunity to win bucks are on there. And there's a reason they want to be on there. Whether you're creating scrape trails, clover trails, it might be that that five acres is located uh, an eight acre chunk that I went to in Wisconsin. They've, they've shot a few mature bucks on. It's because they're located between a golf course and then a big subdivision and an ag field. Right. So they're they're basically a funnel. And they hold some does, they have some apple trees on there, and those are um within the scrape trails. And so deer will travel back and forth between the ag fields, the golf course, the subdivision, and they're just in that perfect location. So you're not trying to, you know, carve out four acres of food there because then you're just gonna stack deer on the neighbor's property in that case or out on the golf course. Um right. but if in, in Coon Valley where I hunt in Wisconsin and you know, I I don't mind telling people this because you know, we we create so many YouTube videos on our land and people can see where it's at pretty easily. You know, they can see that it's uh, just south of the industrial park in Coon Valley if you look on aerial photos. Um, but there you can you can actually look at the Google aerial, aerial photos and you can see the deer. We have three food plots in that location. You can see the trails that leave from those food plots and head to the ag fields. Uh, to the northwest, they're actually cut through the, the grasses. They're they're that defined now after three years of food plots. Mm-hmm. The deer that come to those, we're looking at um, two to three hundred yards to where you get the backside of um, that buck bedding. Mm-hmm. And so, in ag land, deer are used to living in tight quarters. You go to Northern Ohio, where you might not see a tree in two miles in any direction. I've been to a client there where they had twenty six acres, neighbor had twenty that was the biggest chunk of land of cover within two miles in any direction. It was extremely flat. Those deer used to be in compartmentalized. You might be able to fit that food source to backside bedding movement within 150 yards, 200 yards at the most, where you go up in the UP of Michigan and I'm shooting a buck on public land that's feeding on bait piles, three quarters of a mile to a mile away. And I'm shooting at 1030 back in his bedroom. He's literally the, the movement there on that big vast public land, Um, to those bait piles and back, which is their primary food source at that time of year, um, is going to be about three-quarters of a mile to a mile. They're not within a quarter mile. They don't tolerate that level of stress. Mm. And so you really adjust. And so when I'm looking at a northern Wisconsin property or northern Michigan, northern Minnesota, upstate New York, even big woods of Pennsylvania, big woods of Kentucky, um, I'm keeping that in mind that deer are used to a lot of space, So the front side, the back side of movement, you need a lot more acreage. Um, But when you get into mixed ag and heavy ag, I mean, literally you're looking at two to 400 yard windows. And so you're looking at, here's the food and these are the directions those deer can come in and you're creating micro movements that either come into an assemblage of food sources in one location or separate food sources that all relate to each other.
1: Hmm. Man, that's uh, (laughs) the fact, it's crazy that from an aerial photo, you can actually see the deer, the deer trails moving from one place. To the. the Did you look it up while I was talking
4: to you? No, I I didn't (laughs) because you happen to look it up or.
1: Yeah, I'm totally going to look it up now because that's just incredible to be able to see. (laughs) I mean, you're talking about really defining a travel pattern there that you could uh, almost set your watch to. Um, But I want to stay on the topic of cover here for one second, only because it's uh, there's uh, in reading your uh, Whitetail Success by Design, there was a concept in there that you had that was. It was, I guess, eye opening for me and how I look at uh, timber or how I look at land, uh, especially whenever I'm helping my my father in law make improvements to his, you know, to our, our, our farm and so forth. And that's depth of cover. So I, I heard you mention that just a few minutes ago. And I just want to make sure that the folks out there listening kind of understand what depth of cover is and and it's important. So, I mean, if you could kind of give us a a, a description of what that is and you, what you mean by that and, and what the effect of it
4: is uh, depth of cover is a really important concept to me. And, you know, it really relates to, you know, again, we talk about, you know, deer might travel a mile a mature buck on public land. And then that, that, uh, two or 300 yards on private land. But once you, once you, you know, you figure out that balance for your region and and where you're located, um, a 40 acre parcel, for example, if you put five acres of food in the middle of it, um, if you do the math, when you go from the edge of the food to the edge of the property border, you have about 155 yards of depth. And by the time you need 30, 40 yards to access your property and, you know, for any wind um, and move around the outside, you're not left with a lot of depth, that you can actually house uh, does and then bucks. And on the flip side, you take that same five acre chunk of food, you put it on the front side of a 40 acre parcel. And now you have well over 300 yards of depth. Um, that you could potentially house does and then box and even a mature buck towards the back as it relates to that food source. So that depth of cover um, you know, it goes back to, to what I find and you know, I have the luxury of scouting uh, basically buck bedding areas and deer habitat for a living. So, and it's kind of cool to see how the deer relate across the country because they're not that different from each other. Um, for example, an area in Maryland or Delaware might be similar to uh, lower Michigan in terms of, you know, the the percentage of cover and the type of food that's there. And, and you see these areas that relate to each other, but it all goes back to, you know, if, if you have a significant food source it's two, three, four acres, typically what I see is that you're not going to find evidence of mature buck bedding um, let's say in a mixed ag region within two to 400 yards of that, that food source. Um, so you need that depth because if you don't have that depth, then you're not going to be able to hold that, that mature buck. You might have room for does, you typically have room for does. And if you have too many does, then they, they fill in those layers of bedding and there's no room left over for bucks. So, you know, part of it's your doe management, making sure that you have a balance of does and, and not too many, not, not in excess. But then, at the same time, do you have enough depth to actually house a mature buck on your property? And and really, on forty acres, a lot of times it might be that that buck is on your neighbor's property, a hundred yards in, um, or fifty yards in, or right on the edge of your property. And that's great because your neighbor typically isn't approaching their land from your land, and so that means they're coming in from the outside, facing your land. And if that buck if they infringe on them. Typically what I find is if he's relating and he has that depth of cover and he's relating to a specific food source every afternoon or most every afternoon, then he won't particularly to leave the area, he'll just cheat towards his food side. So if you still have two, 300 yards of depth on your property, and he chooses to live 80 yards back in your neighbors. Once your neighbor pressures him a little bit, then what I see is that they'll tighten up that movement more on your land because he does not want to leave his, his afternoon food source in that movement. So it all goes back to that depth and making sure that you have that. So you can actually have that systematic approach where you have these morning stands back here, these intermediate stands for cruising midday, Uh, Maybe late morning, uh, maybe early afternoon, and then you have the evening stands that are closer to food because you actually have that depth and that assemblage, and and then you protect that at all costs.
1: Right. So I wanted to, uh, you'd mentioned they don't access their their property from your property, right? Um, And so that brings me. That was a nice segue into my next question, which is is covering uh, access. So I wanted to kind of get a sense from you as to how much focus you put on. Determining access before you start implementing food plots or any other habitat up, uh, you know, updates, so so to speak. So, wh- how what what kind of focus do you put on access when you're setting up a property? I know for me, you know, after I read the Whitetail Success by Design book, um, that actually it helped me tremendously in terms of accessing my my stand locations. There was one big takeaway that I kind of religiously use now, which was when you talked about you know my stand locations in that. If I'm am having to cross any type of deer trails that I should cross them, make sure to cross them perpendicularly and cross them on either the opposite side of my stand from which the direction from which I think deer are going to come from. That way, at only one point within that trail, are they ever going to have an opportunity to pick up my scent? And I actually, I've actually shared that with a couple people and they were like, they never, it seems like such a simple concept, but it's just something that's completely overlooked. So I wanted to get a sense from you of of like the focus you put on access when developing a property.
4: The access is, is kind of like it, you know, you look at that and that's one of the questions I have when someone sends me an aerial, I've had guys that send me, you know, 10 pages of notes and, and CDs and, you know, SD cards to look over their land it's almost like two information at one point, because at that point, I'm the structure is what's most important, and the structure is access. The structure is habitat constraints, age of habitat, your neighboring pressure, your neighboring, neighboring food sources, and, and even your resources to a little bit, because you um, need to know those to start off. Mm-hmm. But the access is, is important because it established that framework. For example, you might have a large swamp that comes in on the west side of a border Well, obviously... If you're going to access along that west edge, you're going to have to bump way into the property potentially on a a small parcel. And so how does that affect where food would go? And so what I'm looking at is, um, you know, food has to relate to that depth of cover, um, but food has to be completely hidden. And meaning that I never want to access through that food and never want to spook deer off that food source. So, if access point that I have is too close to a food source or bedding area, and it, and it potentially is setting me up to where I'm, I'm spooking deer and educating deer. Then that food source needs to shrink, move, uh, be better hidden, uh, screened, uh, you know, at a higher level. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so access, and, and like you brought up perpendicular access. What I what I actually like the most too is that. I'm accessing stand location perpendicular to the movement, but I never even walk over the movement, the movements behind the stand location. Mm-hmm. So that um, I walk to a stand, that's the closest point I ever get to that movement. And, uh, and and so yeah, you're not coming in at an angle, you're not walking along that because then you're just exposing yourself. You, know, you really wanna have that window where you're walking into a stand in, in, in order to spook a deer, they either have to be in the unimproved area that you're accessing through or right within that 50 to 75-yard window in front of your stand, left to right, and then they just happen to be moving through at that time, mm-hmm. uh, which is really just, you know, sometimes a few seconds. It could be 15 seconds, 10. So your your odds are really low when you're accessing a movement like that, as opposed to you have to be very careful at a bedding area. That's why I like to get in there in the morning, and that's the only time bedding areas. And then at the same time, um Um, an evening food source. I'm typically not going in there um, early in the morning to where I might potentially spook out deer that are feeding in the morning on that food plot. Or um, I'm also keeping in mind when I get out of my stand location in the evening, it's great if you had a great set and the deer came into the food, but if you have to spook every deer in there to get out of your stand, then that stand needs to move. The food source needs to move. So my goal is to never spook a deer, Of course, that doesn't happen (laughs) at all. And uh, but uh, but it it kind of uh, you're really playing poker in the Deer Woods with every decision you make. Um, You know, when you choose to hunt a stand, what is the percentage of chance that this is a good day? is that a good stand? You know, what percentage are you playing? And then your access, you're going to spook deer, but what can I do to limit spooking deer? So maybe your spook rate goes from 30% to 13%. You're still spooking deer, but a drastic reduction. And that, that has a great impact on your potential of building a herd, uh, building a quality hunt, and and then actually enjoying the hunt for the entire season instead of the first two or three sets. Right.
1: It's interesting that you may, that you mentioned, um, you know, setting up, a, a you know, for uh, opportunities or, or successful hunts throughout the season. That's kind of what this next question is about, you know, because I wanted to get an understanding of when you're setting up a property, you know, are you able to assess, you know, what kind of setup, you know, you need to implement, um, you know, on that piece of property, knowing that, you know, this property is going to hunt better early season or it's going to, you know, be a good rut property, you know, or is your goal to turn every property that you're working on? into something that can provide, you know, hunting success opportunities throughout the entire season. Like I'm con- I, just my novice, you know, you know, uh, pr- I guess understanding of it is, you know, I would assume that this would be skewed sure. or partly determined by, by neighborhood level of client commitment, um, you know, and those types of things. Um, and then of course, just maybe even, even the size of the property where it's, you know, it might be a good rut property because well it's going to be a good a good travel corridor between two established properties that you're in between, and that might be what it is. And so you set yourself up the best you can for that scenario. So can you talk a little bit about how you assess the, the properties? I don't want to say value, but value value relevant to each part of the season.
4: Yeah, that's, um, you know, I haven't thought of it that way too. It's kind of, you have properties, you're always looking at the lowest hole in the bucket. And so like that eight acre parcel that I was mentioning you know, unless you know the deer moving from food sources to bedding, you know, golf course to, to ag land, um, it, uh, you know, in a, in a property like that where it's just a pasture, you're looking at more of the rut and you're making um, recommendations based on that pasture and making sure that when a deer does come on the property, in particular a buck, that he's following and giving you those, those uh, shot opportunities and windows to get a good view of them but most of the properties and I'm thinking about the three forties that I hunt you know, around uh Southwest Wisconsin, those properties, um, you know, I look at like, and, and properties by and large that I look at, and I would say my average client has about a hundred acres. Um, and you know, I have those small properties. I have some really big ones, but for the most part, I'd say, um, 85 to 90% of those lands you're looking at creating opportunities for them for the entire season. Um, if it's only a rut property and let's say it's a, a 60-acre parcel, an 80-acre parcel, 40-acre parcel, I think we can do a lot better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we can, if a landowner is willing to put food in where it needs to go and they have the resources to keep planting those, um, then then you know there's a lot you can do to make sure that maybe you don't have a perfect early season hunting. You know, like in Wisconsin, the season opens the third Saturday in September. Uh, maybe you don't have those last few days that are perfect in December to hunt but you're trying to capture as many weeks towards the center of that might cheat towards the early season might cheat towards the late season but you know i'm talking the property should be good from early to mid-october through december or october 1st through mid-december whatever it might be and on those larger properties then that window gets um to be you know 100 of the season and so you know the rut there's a lot of properties that you can just you really don't even need to do much. If you're just going to sit on a funnel in and in a bench and wait for a buck to come through because you have big bucks in the area. And I would say like an area like Buffalo County where they have strict management they they have minimums and a lot of the outfitters and guides. It's heavily outfitted and guide controlled Well, you could sit on a really nice bench a nice funnel, not do anything with a 40 acre parcel and shoot a monster buck every year or a mature buck at least every year mm-hmm. it might not be the one you're after it might not be a target buck. Um, but you really don't have to do much to that. Where I'd, I'd rather take that person. I think, you know, there's you're looking at a much larger window that. You know, not just to, to, you know, count on the rut uh, right. to get your buck every year. In fact, what I look at when I hunt, I look at, like, I really love to have my buck um, before November 1st, because that means I'm on a target buck and I'm getting to watch that buck and I've been able to have a successful harvest on a, you know, pre-laid plan and stands and, and, you know, following that buck for a few years Um, where if I have to wait till November, then I feel like even though it's the peak of the rut, I might miss my opportunity on that target buck that I'm after because is he on my land? Is he, you know, a mile away chasing does? Um, Has he been harvested already on a neighboring property where in October, in that pre-rut period, if you're, if you're building a property properly, then, you um, should have some good opportunities on that block, um a lot, you know, just right before the rut starts, and before he has a chance to really leave and take off a long, long distance.
1: Right. I want to, I want to circle back to one thing we talked about that when we were talking about access, um, this is, I want to get a sense of, from you, what, as far as when you're setting up a property, how much are you looking at prevailing wind or, you know, do you do wind mapping to kind of understand where you should be hanging sets? And then two, you know, how are you determining you know where the best you know place to hang a stand is? like what what are the kind of factors you're looking looking at? So say you've done your property enhancements, you've done your wind mapping, or whatever it is that you're you're doing to kind of take the wind into into consideration. What for you is like the telltale like this is the spot we need to place a stand uh, on this property? these are or these are the handful of spots where we should have stands.
4: Well, one thing as far as the wind goes, um I look at that a uh, landowner needs to have a hunter needs to have stand locations for every wind um if you look at the wind charts and you look at historical data for certain areas um there's really no you know guys will say well there's it's, uh, you know hunter will tell me that it's northwest winds um you know primarily through the, throughout the season well that means it's getting colder every single day throughout the season because north winds bring cold weather and in, and on the flip side if it's south winds every day that means it's getting warmer and that means there's no rain you know there's so there's fronts coming in through every you know six to 10 days, 12 days at the latest, and and they'll have east winds on the front side of that. And then if it's a cold front, the heavy north winds, if it's a warm front, you'll have the south winds on the side. As far as wind direction goes, um, you're really looking at, you're creating long lines of movement, and you're creating opportunities for gear movement that are parallel to your borders and, and stayed inside your borders. And what that does is it creates standing opportunities over a long distance, over a long pattern for just about every wind location. And so that being said, what I really like about hills, and this is what you'll look at with clients and have the habitat day coming up on Saturday and we're gonna look at specific wind locations to where you can actually cheat the wind um, so that you can hunt high even if it's at your back in the morning and have a buck below you and not spook them. Um, You want to have a side wind across the hill that's getting sucked down into a hollow um, in the evening and and you need to pay attention to the wind two to three hours before dark and then it'll shift and start to change to fall that last hour when the temperatures change. So you need to plan that whole sit out accordingly. And so what I'll do is a lot of times, um, not every client, but I would say one third, um, probably um, maybe a quarter to one third of all my clients will go through every stand location. So on a typical 40, there might be 12 to 14 stand locations we'll go through every stand and talk about it's a morning stand, evening stand and hunt with these winds. And, um, and so it makes sense to the client and to the landowner too, because, you know, I look at this stuff every day so I can look at it and say, yeah, this, you know, use this stand here and this backside of a bedding, use it with this wind. But I can imagine I've had some of my clients tell me that their heads spinning by, you know, by the end of the day. (laughs) And I'm not trying to do that, but I'm trying to make sure that when I leave for one, the plan is drawn, they can see it. They have their stand locations. They can begin working on it immediately. Uh, but two, I want them to have, it'll make sense to me, but it's got to make sense to them. And, and part of that is going through each individual stand location. And finally, with the stands themselves, I'm looking at not crossing deer movement. So... Let's say, and I just use this example, it's at the top of a hollow. And this this change in elevation is going down 400 feet in elevation below. It takes a quarter mile to get to the bottom. Well, at the top, if there's a series of benches, you might have a really good deer trail that rims the inside of that hollow in the woods uh, 40 yards in. You might have one that's 50 yards in, and then you have one that's 55 yards in, and then it gets really steep. And, and then there's another series of really good... Um, uh, movement patterns and benches blow there. So you have that thought of, well, I could get in between them and I can hunt these lower ones and I can hunt the ones above me. But in that case, in the morning, you're going to blow out all those, those, uh, trails above you and you have to cross through all of them to get to your stand. So I take the more conservative approach and I back up to where that first trail that's 40 yards in, I might try to block or pinch down so that I'm taking advantage of the one that's at 50 and 55 yards, and or maybe I could take advantage of all three. But I'm really looking at not crossing a really high quality deer movement to get to a stand. So I'm looking at furthest point back um, to where I feel I can sit in this tree 90 percent of the time, and I have a deer get downwind to me. You know, going back to controlling your scent control, a stand location, and then at the same time, you know that's not my only stand that will allow me to hunt that particular buck you know that's the backside of the bedding movement maybe it's a cruising movement maybe 400 yards down I have a stand location for food and maybe halfway off to the side I have a really nice bench and point that I hunt for midday cruising and I come in from a completely different angle for all three stands and so I look at it like if I'm chipping conservatively away at a mature buck target movement that I have then then eventually you'll you'll have a, you know, I find eighty ninety percent of the time you end up getting a chance at them just because you're conservatively chipping away, using the best days to hunt with the best stands for the time of day. And it doesn't take that long if he's still there and if he's still using the pattern and if he didn't spook them, um, you know, if the food sources are staying the same, right. if the bedding area, then, you know, if everything's still the staying the same, then you have a really good opportunity if you keep chipping away conservatively. So I always take the conservative, you know, can I put the stand on the side of a steep face? is that going to pull me too far off the movement? So maybe I'll keep that safe, steep face in mind and move forward a little bit or a marsh or whatever it might be so that I can have that safe sit once I get there.
1: Yeah, there's one stand. It's funny as you're as you're talking through that, there's one stand location if I'm going to try to go after Lucky this year um, that I have set up that is on that crick bottom that it probably wouldn't be a kill stand necessarily. It could be depending on how he comes through that area, but it backs up to uh, a stream. So there's nothing, it basically is a nice kind of uh, scent breaker for you. Um, so, so long as I have the mm-hmm. right wind and it's blowing back across the, across the stream, um, all the movement would happen oh, in front yeah, of me. So, it'd be, yeah, so I've had some, I've had some nice encounters uh, down there and I think probably because of that stream because it kind of is a nice breaker to where everything that's going to be coming by me is going to have to come in front of me um and they're never going to have an opportunity to have my wind. Um I did have a nice encounter in, with one deer down there and uh he got too close and as I uh, my my failure on that one was I didn't have enough cover in the tree and got busted.
4: Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I've hunted out of some pretty junk trees because you know, it's like, it's gotta be within this 10 foot diameter window or 20 foot and yeah. you have to pick what's available. Yeah. Um,
1: it was, it was the one, you know, was one thing,
4: Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's unfortunately get pushed into that. I think with the, with the stand locations, um, you know, imagine this is what a lot of guys don't get experience and, Guys, I'm referring to hunters. I know there's a lot of women that, hunt, so yeah. I just say that. But anyways, um, there it's uh, um, your stand locations. Kind of imagine when you go in there. If you have an invasive stand set, um, you go in there and use that stand, maybe get lucky the first time, but by the second or third time, you spooked a considerable amount of deer. I look at it like it has a ripple effect for 100, 200 yards away. So you're not just spooking that stand location, you're potentially spooking a 40, or a 30, or 20 acres. And that's, I think, a lot of times what's happening. Guys, even if you're waiting until that rut time, you say, well, I'm gonna go into this invasive stand, but I'm in the center of activity, and it's kind of a one and done, either get them or don't, Um, on the other hand, if you conservatively chip it away, and like you're saying with that that stand you're talking about by the stream, um, that could be a potential stand location that you could hunt over and over again throughout the season. Mm -hmm. Over and over again, maybe you might hunt it six, seven, eight times. And and to where you can count on getting a good sit every time you have it. And if you multiply that by 10 or 12 stands on a 40-acre parcel, then your odds of not only connecting on a target buck or, or hunting a buck, but actually having the ability to build a quality herd to protect young bucks and to advance them to the next age class is extremely high. And it's something that that's ultimately what I try to do for myself. And then at the same time, hopefully bring to the table for my clients. Right.
1: So I know we've kept you here for a little while. I have two kind of parting parting questions for you. One is, is it kind of a loaded question? Um, but I wanted but sure. since we're coming up on the early part of the season here, I wanted to get Jeff Sturgis's top three tips for early season, early season hunting. So do you have any kind of, uh, you know, th- things that you kind of are, you know, lock, stock and barrel that at the beginning of every season, early season hunts um, that you have as far as an approach is concerned?
4: Yeah, I love early season hunts where um, you really put a premium on that evening hunt. So again, not going back to, you know, going back to where I don't want to use a morning set to that potentially might ruin that evening sit that I'm planning on. Um, so I really put a premium on evening sits. And that's where, um, you know, I've, even client stories, um, you might have a late September cold front. And I had a client, a couple clients in late September, early October that were following the cold fronts. And um, they both shot some bucks. The one was a uh, Bowman buck, I think it was 212, 220. And he, he made that long track. He normally wouldn't hunt that time of year, but he was watching the cold fronts, which is critical. Make sure that you're not hunting on a 90-degree day because the bucks just might sit back in the shade until, until dark and not come out. Uh, two, you're relating to a food source movement in the evening. And three, if it's in a dry location, water can be golden at that time of year because deer that are bedded dry, and it's in the early season when everything's hot, and then they're bedded dry all day, meaning there's no water, there's no swamps, creeks in their, in their bedding area. And you can add a water hole on the way to their evening food source. They've been sitting dry all day. Often their first stop will be on that water on the way to food. And so if you're hunting with uh, a good cold front, you're hunting that food source movement, you might be hunting over a water hole or an early season scrapes, scrapes or, scrape or even mock scrape and water hole. You know, often that's the perfect ingredients to uh, lead to a, a really good, really great early season hunt and your hunting box set, you know, again, are unpressured and and you hopefully will have been able to establish a pattern for uh, the weeks leading up to that hunt.
1: Nice. Yeah. There's a, I've read, you know, I've, I've read a lot of your articles as, as you kind of talk about um, uh, water holes and so forth. And this new property that we picked up that my dad picked up has a couple of freshwater springs that run on it and actually is dammed up into like a large pool. Um, so I'm looking forward to some early season hunts around that. And just, it just so happens to be on its way to, uh, to a food, the, the food plot that I'm putting in too. So (laughs) that was, uh, that's that's perfect. Yeah. That was not by, (laughs) that was not by mistake. Um, it was by some of the stuff I've picked up from, uh, from, from reading a lot of stuff that you've put out over the years. Um, and I know that you have kind of talked a lot about watering holes and this was just the other farm that we have it's there's a, a stream on it and there's a, a large uh, creek that runs on a, a trout creek and then um, there's a couple smaller streams on the property so there was never any want or need on that property as there was always a, you know food or a water source readily available but uh the last thing here I want to I want to ask you. Uh, I just want to ask you to take us on a hunt with you. Uh, I want to go on a, a memorable hunt with Jeff and uh, get every detail from the uh, from the time you step out of the truck and maybe uh, startle some folks as you're getting dressed on your tailgate. Back to the tailgate story with the harvest. <laughs>
4: um, yeah, that's a that's a good one. And I and you you'd given me this question ahead of time, and I thought long and heard about this. And really, what jumped into my head about this um, is that it didn't, it didn't involve a hunt for myself. It was for Jake. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was, it would have been when he was 10 years old. Um, and he could go gun hunting in Wisconsin. And, uh, that was, we, I knew where I wanted to be and it was difficult. You know, Jake was 10 years old you know, I'm used to going in and I'm, I can't say that I'm always in the best of shape, but I'm, I'm used to walking a lot. And so for me to go up 300 feet in elevation and get into a bench isn't a big deal. Um, but Jake and I started, um, we, we had our old leases by the conservation club and I'm a life member there and a member. So then I'm able to access through that to get to our old land. And, you know, just going in with Jake, I knew what, he would see. This was a special hunt to where we were gonna get fairly invasive for a gun season sit that we would sit all day. And and we, I wanted to get up to a little bench where we could see the rim around us in a lot of benches. I wanted to get in far enough to where I thought we could be at the edge of deer movement, but not so far in that we were getting past it and potentially spooked deer. I can remember Jake several times on the way in, you know, he just huffing and puffing and I was too. <laughs> and, uh, and And just stopping in the dark, we went in very early. And I had the tent on my back, you know, carrying the gun. We had two chairs, you know, we're carrying everything in because I couldn't go set up on that and, and potentially spook deer at any time during the season. So we're, we're going in the dark and Jake, um, I'm sure we stopped. It's probably a half mile walk in, um, but all uphill and you go up about 300 feet in elevation altogether in that spot. And we stopped many times. And I can remember Jake, you know, he's at that point of giving up and, you know, I have to give him that encouragement where, Jake, you know it's going to be light in just a little bit and in an hour or you know two hours whatever and you know two hours from now three hours from now you might be seeing the biggest buck in the woods and you know he'd never shot a shot a buck and so we're walking in and you know, i tried to encourage him as much as possible and i can remember getting a little frustrated you know at right. that point but we're we're there and we were both made it we set up the blind and you know he he sat in there and we both had our favorite candy bars and you know snacks and you know this is a hunt with my son and it was you know that hunt and getting in there and having to get light and having a smile on his face finally you know he's caught his breath and settled right. down it's comfortable and we start to hear some deer moving and seeing around and and uh we're not really seeing much and pretty soon we see antlers down in the the drainage and it was 50, 75 yards down and it looks like a pretty decent buck. And, um, sure enough, the buck popped up on the trail and I was looking to the scope just to make sure what it was. And, um, when it popped up there, I was certain it was a, a shooter and, and sure enough, it was a nice buck. And Jake said, I want to shoot him. It's, you know, I want to try to shoot him. And, um, of course I said, well, I'd, yeah, it's your, your hunt. You know? And then, uh, you know, I gave the gun to him and, and he uh made a really nice shot at seventy five, eighty yards and put it right through the lungs. The deer went up the bench to our right side and it and it fell down right there. And literally Jake just buried his head into my chest and cried and we both oh, stopped. Man. And you know, and, and I actually videotaped a portion of that and that's something I'll treasure forever. But um it was, you know, the whole thing and what we do on our properties um we sit till dark when we're gun hunting and then we leave and so we don't spook any more deer but jake and i went up there and snapped a few pictures and it was a beautiful eight point that we had pictures of for two years and you know jake with his little round face and rosy cheeks at that time he he's gotten a lot taller and leaner now in, in these days but he's he's holding that those antlers look so huge next to him and that and it, um all the friends there we we meet at a local uh, restaurant bar. They have prime rib on Saturday night. Uh, the stockyard there in Coon Valley, and so imagine Jake. You know, he's there with seven or eight of my friends and people coming and congratulating him, and and we all went out together. Um, and I think two or three pickup truck loads and and got Jake's deer. So That's you know awesome. that whole experience awesome. with Jake, and I know that it meant a lot to him, and that was awesome. It was. uh, you know, it it beat anything that, that I shot or any hunting experience that I could share. And, and so for the last, uh, so that was, you know, he was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Um, it was 14. So 10 for those five years I've hunted with, um, Jake, um, on opening day Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, it was, you know, that's, it's kind of shifted that focus of, you know, I haven't had my own opening day for gun season. And uh, I've greatly enjoyed those sits with Jake and, uh, and being a part of that. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the greatest memory I think, uh, a father can have with their, with, with hunting is with their kids,
1: man, that's a, that's a great story. And, uh, I don't know how we would top that. So that feels like the, uh, the appropriate bow to, uh, to place on this, uh, this deer hunting package for <laughs> for for this week but before I before I do let yeah. you go if if you wouldn't mind uh let the people out there listening know where they can find uh out more information about you and about whitetail habitat
4: solutions well on our whitetail habitat solutions website is www.whitetailhabitatsolutions.com uh currently there are over 400 whitetail strategy articles on there um, i believe we have 70 to 80 videos uh, between the site and on YouTube too. Um, we also have White uh, whitetail habitat solutions, Facebook page, which we are very active on. I have Twitter and I use it sometimes, but our Instagram, we update our Instagram uh, just about every day. And so we are on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and then of course the website. And that's where we post all the articles to And then we'll release them on Facebook. And, uh, and then we really try to follow uh, Dylan who I employ. He's a, great photographer and I pretend to be sometimes (laughs) and uh, we put some nice pictures on Instagram and and uh, so we try to follow especially what we're doing on a daily basis through our photos on Instagram too. Nice.
1: Hey, uh, Jeff, I appreciate you coming on and everyone out there listening. Be sure to give him a follow on all of his social media channels and check out the site. It's one of those places that I've made a uh, consistent stop in my voyage for whitetail knowledge. I'm never, I'm never disappointed by what I'm finding on the site. Um, it's been tremendously helpful to me and uh, not to mention the books as well. So uh, be sure to check out the uh, the website and make sure to hit his social feeds and, and give him a follow. But Jeff, I do appreciate you taking some time this morning for uh, to come on and talk some deer hunting. Um, it's been a pleasure and uh i look forward to uh chatting soon
4: yeah i really appreciate it clint i'm hoping uh we can run into each other uh scouting ohio this year in the, in the coming weeks so that'd be great but uh really appreciate the conversation
1: all right folks that's a wrap for today's show just want to thank jeff for joining the program uh super happy to have jeff for the past two episodes uh, tons of content that he shared uh, great information two episodes that probably weren't a re-listen just because of all the great information that he shared probably not able to get it all in one pass but be sure to head over to to, uh, whitetailhabitatsolutions.com and follow Jeff on his Instagram and Facebook pages as well uh, to to be sure to stay connected with all the content that he and his team are continuing to put out and I'll of course place all the links in the blog post show notes to his uh, web properties. Also, want to thank all of you for tuning in and giving me a uh, part of your day. Uh, be sure to hit the iTunes subscribe button so you don't miss any of the upcoming guests or episodes. There are a few in store that you want to definitely tune into. Uh, and be sure to follow along with us on the Truth from the Stand Instagram and Facebook pages. And if you'd like to get involved in the show and have us or a guest answer your questions, or if you'd just like to recommend a topic for us to discuss, email me your suggestions at truthfromthestandgmail.com or click the email button on our instagram account and leave us a message and finally i need to give a big shout out to our partners that continue to help us make this podcast possible whitetail institute of north america exodus outdoor gear and lone wolf portable tree stands and until next time we'll see
3: you